I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by Dante Labs, the global leader in genomics solutions for rare diseases. With their Rare Disease Health Package, they offer comprehensive whole genome sequencing for rare disease patients. To learn more about Dante Labs and how they're revolutionizing healthcare, visit us.dantelabs.com. Hi there, and welcome to another heartfelt episode of Once Upon a Gene, the podcast that explores the extraordinary journeys of families facing rare diseases. I'm your host, Effie Parks. And today, we are going to have a deeply emotional and thought-provoking conversation. Grief is a journey that no one ever chooses to embark upon, yet so many families find themselves navigating this treacherous path, especially when their child battles a rare disease. And today's episode is particularly special because it's a testament to the incredible connections that can emerge from our shared experiences. It's funny because I actually met today's guests in the same way. They both cold called me at one point. If you listen to this show, you know my story with Daniel DeFabio from the Disorder Channel calling me when he was in the hospital over Christmas. And I met Kim earlier this year when she called me about a question concerning a playground. So I I just thought that's one of their funny connections. And it's just so striking how much they have in common. Not only did they both lose their beloved sons, who were both named Lucas, but they've just shared so much of the same rare disease journey like all of us filled with countless emotions and challenges and unexpected moments of strength, really. So in this episode, we're going to delve in pretty deep to the depths of their grief and exploring how they've managed to hold on to both this anger and tenderness simultaneously. And we're going to discuss the complexities of supporting those who are grieving and how the term ritualized chronic compassion is playing a role in both of their healing and all of ours. So. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I adore these two so much, and they just have such amazing skills uh, with their storytelling and just really conveying their thoughts in such a warm way. So please enjoy my conversation with Kim and Daniel. Well, hello, Kim and Daniel. Welcome to the show and back to the show. Thank you. Hi, Effie. Good to be back. You know, it's funny. I've I met both of you in a very similar way. Both of you just messaged me and asked if you could call me on the phone. You are a beacon to all of us that are adrift in the world, Effie. (laughs) I'm I'm glad you respond to these random requests. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look what I would miss out on if I didn't, right? Everything's in your path for a reason. Daniel, I didn't know that's how you met Effie. Why did you call her? I was in a hospital room with my son in that horrible, uncomfortable couch seat that you're supposed to sleep in. And I couldn't sleep. And it was three in the morning and I was looking for a podcast. And it was the first time I found Effie's. And it happened to be the episode, Hospital Hair Don't Care, all about how you can't sleep in a hospital or what might make you more comfortable in a hospital. And it couldn't have been more perfect. And I said, I got to talk to her. (laughs) And Kim and I share a mutual friend with the two of us. Interestingly enough, Daniel, she's friends with Liz Morris, the beautiful Liz Morris of Seattle, Washington. Yep. And I had seen too, I think the reason I called you Effie is because of your advocacy to build inclusive, not just accessible playgrounds for everybody, including folks with disabilities. And um, after Lucas died, after my son Lucas died, we thought, how can we 
sort of honor his legacy and continue his presence in the world. And um, having a more inclusive and accessible set of playgrounds in our neighborhood is a big part of how we want to do that. So I think I called you for hot tips on how to hack city council planning. (laughs) Yes, which I'm so excited for you. I can't wait to see that come true someday. And yes, just be annoying is pretty much the answer to that question with city council. But anyways, thank you both. I love you both so much. You mean a lot to me. And you both have a son, had a son. I don't know how you're really supposed to say that. Probably depends on the day. Named Lucas. And both of them were taken by a rare disease. And you have really deep personalities, both of you. And you also have kind of this light airiness that's so friendly about you. And it's it's really special. Your advocacy journeys before and after are, are really, really special to watch for me, especially. So I'm excited to introduce you to anyone new listening. And Kim, I know you're probably fairly new on the scene and many people haven't heard from you. So can you both just share a little bit about your sons, Lucas, Lucas, Lucas's, <laughs> the little Lukies that were in your life and the rare disease that they had and what was most unique about them? Hey, listeners, I want to take a moment to talk about Dante Labs and their groundbreaking rare disease health package. If you or someone you know is facing the challenges of a rare disease, this is a game changer. With their advanced whole genome sequencing, Dante Labs provides a comprehensive view of your genetic makeup, helping to pinpoint the cause of a rare disease and offering potential treatment options. Dante Labs understands that time is of the essence for rare disease patients. That's why their results are available within weeks, not months. Plus, their pre- and post-specialist consultations offer invaluable support throughout your diagnostic journey. So, if you're seeking answers and support for rare disease, turn to the experts at Dante Labs. Visit us.dantelabs.com to explore the rare disease health package and take charge of your health today. I love talking about Lucas. So first of all, thank you for this gift of being able to talk about him and share his story. And you're right. Yeah, I'm new to the rare disease scene in so many ways. So my Lucas was born in August of 2020. And, you know, he was a full-term baby, mostly healthy. I know that's not how everyone's journey starts, but the first two weeks of his life were just wonderful. So many snuggles. And even then he had this steady, quiet gaze. And we didn't have a name for him actually when he was born, but he was just so magnetic when he was born that we named him Lucas, which means bringer of light. And when Lucas was about three weeks old, he started having, you know, unusual GI issues and they just didn't resolve. They persisted and then they were followed by motor delays and loss of skills and more feeding issues. And so the whole first year was this journey of being more and more concerned and and worried. But at the same time, Lucas learned to smile and then to laugh and his dimples always stayed with us. And I think, you know, Lucas ultimately, when he was about a year old, was diagnosed with a rare and terminal disease called Lee syndrome, and he died when he was two and a half um, in December of 2022. I think what I would want to share with everybody about Lucas is that this mix of staying really present, being able to smile and show up when you're in discomfort, when you feel unwell, when nobody can resolve or really even understands your pain. That's Lucas in a nutshell. He was so present. And I think that he he stays with me in that way. He reminds me that the beauty and the terror are together. They're inseparable in the rare disease journey. I love Lucas. I wish I could do the journey of parenting him all over again, all the time, even though it was not easy. It completely shattered me, but I would do it all again if I could. Oh, Kim, all of that speaks to me. And it's not just because they're both named Lucas, but our Lucas was born in 2008 and it was actually on the winter solstice. And we did not yet know that his name meant bringer of light. But now that you we think about it, we learned that maybe a year later, when you think about it, if you're on the darkest, longest night and you have a bringer of light, that seems pretty appropriate. We did spend the first 10 days in a NICU with him, and at the time, uh, it w- there were symptoms that may have been warning signs had we known to look for them, but eventually they we got the all clear and dismissed, and it wasn't until nine months that he was missing milestones and, we, and actually sort of regressing. So that was what triggered us to see a geneticist, and you know, 
it's weird to say lucky in this context, but we happened upon a geneticist who had seen Menke's syndrome before. So he knew right away what to test for, what to look for. There were two other cases in our local area and we'd gotten to know those people eventually. So they were the reason that we got a quick diagnosis. And I mentioned that the first 10 days of life because he was in the right place in the right time. And yet we didn't get the diagnosis then. And Menke's is one of the few rare diseases that has a treatment. And that treatment is pretty much only effective if given in the first 10 days of life. So there's a little cruel twist to the timing there, but it doesn't matter. There's never a good time to get a rare disease. There's never a good rare disease to get, but that certainly shaped a bit of our journey through the medical system. And then he went on, he beat the prognosis a bit. He lived, they say they would, boys usually would live three to 10 years. He made it to 11 and a half. So we, I guess you could look at it, got a little bonus time with him. It's so hard to know how to evaluate a journey where you, you at the outset of your journey, you know the disease is terminal, there is no cure, and my work is to stay present, to love my son, and to make their life beautiful, and mine alongside of it. And it's just an impossible task. And so I think, you know, did you get lucky? Did you get unlucky? Is that even a sentence that makes any sense? <laughs> I don't know. It's really hard to evaluate it. I, I really struggle with that. Like, how do I even talk about those two years, two and a half years of his life that were his entire life, my Lucas's entire life, and that were my life with him? It feels like a meteoric, life-changing explosion that I, I, I don't know, that words can't quantify. And I really sense that in how you say, like, I don't know how to make sense of those 11 and a half years. Yeah. Mm. I could listen to both of you all day. I think you just have such a way with words. And thank you for telling me about both Luke's, Lukey's. I love that you say both Lukey's. <laughs> we called him Lukey. It's funny. Yeah, we it's did too. Because... You can have a Before... locus of Lucas's. <laughs> a locus of Lucas's. We're going to talk about this grief, but in a, in kind of a different way. We're going to talk about kind of exploring these contradictory emotions that Kim just talked about. And we're also going to talk about the supports and the compassion and a new term that Daniel has dubbed that I love. So, yeah, I mean, obviously grief brings forth this mix of emotions that you can probably only fully experience uh, with the death of a child. There are levels of grief, absolutely, that come with a diagnosis, that come with anticipating a death and all of those other types of griefs that we now know of, um, including this anger and this tenderness that that you're talking about. So how do these contradictory feelings coexist, y'all? Like, how do they coexist post-death? I think for me, they kind of they kind of take turns, you know, the positive feelings and the negative feelings, and one gives way to another. And there are days, I hate to admit it, but I it's not that I forget about Lucas, but I he's not uppermost in my mind some days. And there are other days when he is, and it's all the positive, wonderful things. It's all the great memories. And then there are those other days where he's uppermost in my mind, and it's the loss and the pain and the missing him. And I just heard Thanks to Effie, she told me to check out grief.com, which is David Kessler's website. He said, we often talk about a piece of me died with this person, but we don't as often say a piece of that person lives on in me. And I think that's a way to remember the two parts that go together, the good and the bad feelings that, you know, it's a two-way street in a way. I really resonate with that, Daniel, because... I feel like my work now is to carry Lucas with me wherever I go. And I'm, I'm newer to this world of bereavement after your child dies than you are. My Lucas died nine months ago. And so I'm definitely still sort of groping around and figuring that out. But I love that sentiment. And what this conversation makes me think of is when I was in college, I first learned about this poet uh, Rainier Marie Rilke, I'm sure I'm butchering his name. And maybe y'all have heard of him because he's kind of famous. But anyways, he had this, or he wrote, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror, just keep going, no feeling is final. And I remember like sitting on a futon with my college friends, drinking a glass of wine and thinking I knew what that meant. Of course, I had no idea. <laughs> I was like a happy little college student. And I do feel that 
being the parent of Lucas and then having him die is essentially what Rilke was writing about, that it is both beauty and terror together and that none of them are final, which is kind of what Daniel alludes to. And for me, I think the hardest part of this journey is accepting, well, first of all, being aware of where I am on any given day and then accepting it because often I don't want to be there and I didn't expect to be. At a global level, I did not want my son to die and I don't want to be here. So accepting that I'm here is hard. But in the day-to-day, like you said, Daniel, some days you feel lighter and I don't even know if I want to feel that lightness because feeling grief helps me feel close to Lucas. It was the most prominent feeling when he died. I was just shattered. And so if I'm in that place of deep grief, in a way, I feel closer to him. So there is this journey of awareness and acceptance for whatever the emotional soup holds at that moment. I think most of us have a harder time accepting the so-called darker emotions, but I'll just acknowledge that in bereavement, sometimes it's also hard to accept that you might feel joy without your child present, which is a, a unique pain that maybe you also experience. Yes, absolutely. There's there's a little guilt in, you know, the even if you just consider the the practical care needs, you know, the the burden of caregiving, right? And the, and then to have that lifted and to be relieved, to appreciate that you're not doing that work, but that feels like betraying your child because the price you paid for not doing that work is to not have your child anymore. Which is an unpayable price, right? It's unbearable. Yeah. And yet you might feel a sense of relief and it might make a lot of sense that you do. I was on a trip for work like maybe five or six years ago and I was sitting in a seminar that was being given by this beautiful woman. Um, her name is Siobhan Bright and she was talk- she's Native American and she was talking about how in her culture, there is this idea of dualism, that two truths can coexist next to each other. They don't contradict each other. They're not in conflict, but they're simultaneously true. And that that is not an idea that Western culture, so to speak, is is very comfortable with. And I remember listening to it and thinking, I'm not sure I understand. I just sort of put it on a shelf. And then like so many things I put on the shelf of learning um, and grief, it's come back to me because there is this incredible duality that I miss my son, that I would do anything to have him back, and that caregiving was incredibly hard. Or that I'm incredibly angry, and also I love him. Like this experience of fierceness and anger existing alongside of tenderness. (laughs) My brain is not big enough to hold those two things, but they're both true. I don't know if that resonates at all for you. Absolutely. Yeah, the tension between those two ends of a spectrum of emotions. And I don't know if it was true in in your household, but for my wife and I, we would almost ping pong back and forth. You know, it's her turn to be sad. It's my turn to be strong. It's her turn to be strong. It's my turn to be broken. And uh, luckily, I mean, it it didn't often happen that we were both in the same place at the same time, because then who would would be functional? Yes, that sounds very familiar. Oh, yeah. Even, yeah, even I can resonate with that part of like, especially in the beginning, you know, in the super, super rough days of like kind of fighting your footing in that first part of no, you can't have a bad day today. I'm having a bad day. Like I need you to just carry me as much as possible, at least to know that there's a safe zone here uh, because both of us can't crumble. Yeah. I love that quote that you mentioned, and I was actually trying to gather it in my head earlier today, Kim, when I was talking to someone about both things that could be true together. So it's funny you mentioned that. And then it reminds me of, you know, Jessica Fine always talking about grief and joy being woven. And it really is such a deep thought, right? And it's not just a deep thought, but it's a way of life, especially for parents who have lost a child. And then you mentioned anger, right? And it's not just grief and death is so uncomfortable for regular people to comprehend and be around, but the anger, this emotion from it can almost probably be more uncomfortable to address. And especially in the context of grief, right? Of parents who have lost the child. And I wonder how have both of you sort of navigated and 
I don't know, quote unquote, managed your anger while holding on to this tenderness that you speak of? Oh, that's such a good question. I think the first thing I just want to acknowledge is that anger is looked at as a negative emotion, like an emotion that we shouldn't have in our culture. And often we conflate In my mind, we conflate the behaviors that can come along with anger with the feeling. But the feeling is just a feeling, like any other feeling. And it's acceptable. And it is, in some cases, it's actually necessary and a healthy response. I really appreciate here the writings of Kristen Neff, who writes about self-compassion generally. But she talks about how compassion has both tender and fierce sides, and that anger can be an important tool in the compassion toolbox because when you feel compassion for someone who's suffering and you want to change the condition of their suffering, you don't get to change through always the tender side of compassion. You have to have the anger. And I feel like this is something that any rare parent knows at a cellular level because we have all advocated fiercely for our children in systems that don't see them, that don't understand them, and that don't care about them whether that's a hospital or a school or even, you know, inside of families and and friend systems. And I will never forget that feeling in my body when I advocated for Lucas, where I was sort of holding anger and tenderness next to each other. And that's a lot easier to do when your child is in your arms because they bring such tenderness out of you. Like that's what it's like to be a parent. So how I can hold tenderness alongside of anger and grief has been kind of a different journey. And I find that I have to really consider like, what is the purpose of each emotion? So, you know, I can acknowledge it, I can make space for it, I can come to the table of my emotions. And then what I do with it after that is what takes the most amount of like, work and massaging. And I think that anger is what would lead me to advocate, you know, in my city for more inclusive parks and playgrounds, just as an example, like I'm not going to do that because of tenderness, because I, I need the energy and the fuel and the fire to be annoying, quite frankly, but tenderness is what will help me listen to the kids and families who need those inclusive structures with more presence and intention and attunement. I guess where I'm going with this is just that they both are valid and needed. Yeah, I can see why Effie wanted us together. I'm once again going to totally agree with what you just said. I love when you you make yourself question the purpose of each emotion and you talked about anger being an energy and I, I literally sing that line to myself. I got it from a Public Image Limited song which says anger is an energy so that you have to use it for something. You can't just be angry. And, you know, as you said, anger can fuel your advocacy. It can drive your your actions maybe to the good, hopefully to the good. But otherwise, I don't think you can just just stay in a state of anger and, and expect anything good to come of that. But I think how other than, you know, having a catchy little tune in my head, how I've somewhat managed it is um, resisting the temptation to take anger into blame and it's tempting to blame a medical establishment or a particular practitioner who may have, you know, dropped the ball or let you down or not gotten the results you wanted medically. That's one way to go. But for me, once I knew there was a genetic cause and we were a de novo mutation for my son, but two thirds of Menke's cases can be inherited. Ours was the one third that were random. That sort of numbers game of genetic randomness was oddly comforting to me because I didn't have to ask why. It's just a random thing that happens to some people and we're some people, so it happened to us. And then that sort of translated out to other people, like there's seven or 10,000 rare diseases. Of course, the doctors didn't know this one. You know, of course, they didn't get everything right. And I don't know if if that, I guess for me, that that dissipated some of the anger or redirected the anger and I'll, I'll quote uh, David Kessler again, probably incorrectly, but I think he said that it's more comforting to blame ourselves or others rather than to admit there's no one to blame. There's no reason. Oh, I'm so glad to be in community with you because <laughs> I really struggle with, with anger at myself and providers because I just, I mean, I think it's such a natural response. My son is gone and I am shattered by his absence. And so, of course, you know, I'm looking for a way, my mind is 
beautifully inventive in a very sad way, just how could he possibly be here still? But what you're reminding me of is that I had this assumption that if I advocated hard enough and if I was smart enough and determined enough, I could save my child. Um, and I think, you know, for most of my life, because I am a white, cisgendered, able-bodied woman, I've been able to make my way just with determination and some anger <laughs> and being my own advocate. But I couldn't fight off Lee syndrome in Lucas's lifetime. Although, you know, her, our patient advocacy group is trying, but I couldn't do it in his lifetime with determination or intelligence or anger, though they are all noble tools. And so by many measures, including my own, I felt like I failed at parenting because I, I could not keep Lucas safe. And I think what you're getting at, Daniel, is that safety is an illusion. It's a product of privilege and luck. And that in the absence of safety, we can be so angry that we can't have it. But what we can give our children and ourselves is, is that tenderness and softness. Absolutely. I totally agree. And I had the same sort of privileged experience of never feeling disadvantaged until my son was disadvantaged, you know, physically. It's just an absolute shattering, right, of your mental model for the world. And I think the thing that feels like the biggest paradox for me and that is also very emotional for me is that in the face of so much injustice, because it feels like injustice to have your child die and there to be nothing you can do about it. I, I don't measure our injustice against anyone else's, like there are greater injustices in the world, absolutely. But in the face of something that feels deeply unjust at a personal level, to have the response of, of staying present and being tender alongside being angry, I mean, it, it's an ongoing effort. I'll, I'll just put it that way. Yeah. Well, and thank you both for really talking through this. I, In a way, this is like a, a master class of like the concepts, right? Of not only telling your story and figuring out why and having some call to action to at least unearth from it all, but even just really kind of delving into these nuances about it that most people don't ever have to think about and don't want to think about is so valuable. I think it can be applied to so many different areas of people's own existence, no matter what kind of path they're on. So I'm, I'm very appreciative to both of you for kind of talking through this um, for us. Yeah, it's definitely, Effie and I have talked about this many times, and Kim, you were just alluding to it, the, what you expected, and that's the betrayal, right? You, you didn't get the, the parenting life you expected. You didn't get the kind of child you expected. But, but why did we expect that? I mean, maybe maybe because of the odds, right? Most people have non-rare disease kids. <laughs> so, of course, that's what we expected to have. But it's this strange sense of entitlement that you don't know you have until it's taken away. A hundred percent. And, you know, maybe a little sliver of that, too, is that there wasn't this beautiful like robust sort of resource library that is the internet and now conferences and patient advocacy groups that long ago that was having these that were having these conversations right and so i think it's just evolved and it has sort of created a physical thing now to kind of for people to actually even know that it exists more because not one person in my life knew this existed either. Right. And so now they see my life and they know, oh, this exists. I guess that could be me. But be before that, like, I didn't know anyone. I didn't know that it existed really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, too, that sometimes we might feel that society kind of expects not only rare disease parents, but maybe especially grieving parents to kind of embody this strength and this positivity and this sort of elevated understanding. I don't know why, but I think it helps other people cope. Have you found that that has sort of been an air in the room for either of you? And if so, is it annoying or does it help you kind of, I don't know, adapt quicker like usual? Does that make sense? Can you say again what the air in the room is or the expectation is? When people feel like you should sort of be this warrior parent now and have this sort of strength and have this positive outlook on what you had and 
what you've gained from it. Not that you haven't had all of those things, but do you feel pressured in a way to kind of embody that personality as a parent who lost a child? Or do you not feel that pressure? Do you feel like you can't go and be the bummer into the room? Like, do you feel like that's what you would be doing and that you should come in with, oh, but I'm strong and we're getting through it? I I think mostly yes. Definitely like the, what do we want to call it? The default society, you know, feels that way that you're supposed to be that way. And, you know, we've all probably experienced somebody say, oh, you're so strong or you're such a good parent or something. And and those meant to be, of course, the best intentions, the best compliments, but you can be, I can be left thinking, what if I wasn't? What if I'm only that way this hour? (laughs) And another rare disease dad we know reached out to me on a day that he was having a terrible time. And he said, I don't know how you can be so strong. I said, I was sobbing ugly cries just 20 minutes ago for an hour. So, (laughs) you know, um, I'm not so strong as you think. And yes, to your point, Effie, it feels like that's not so okay. Now, where, where it is a little bit more okay is within our circle, within our people, our rare disease community that sort of get it. And and that's why we cling to each other. We have that sort of shorthand that like, I can be joking with you one minute and I can be crying about something the next minute. And neither one is really representative of what's going on, but it's all part of it. That is so beautifully said, Daniel, particularly the last part that neither one is really representative of what's going on. And it's all part of it. It kind of bleeds into Jennifer Seidman's grocery store answer, I guess. Just yeah. many different reasons and settings. And it also relates to, you know, we don't have to go into it too much, but toxic positivity, right? We're all supposed to be warriors that fight. Well, what if you don't? You know, like I, you could say of us with my Lucas that we didn't fight enough for him to walk or talk. I mean, he didn't ultimately walk or talk. Could he have if we worked harder at it? I, I most of the time land on no, that wasn't going to happen, no matter who gave their best efforts to that. But I could be wrong. And doesn't society love the story when it is the case that the kid who wasn't supposed to walk did, the kid who wasn't supposed to talk did, and we celebrate all that stuff. And, we, and there's nothing wrong with those successes, but... We can't all measure to that standard. We can't all be the rare disease warrior that climbs a mountain or bikes across America or discovers his own cure. You know, some of us can, and we, we tell stories about those people and we make movies and books about those people, but it's a little dangerous for us all to try to hold ourselves to that standard. I love that, Daniel. I feel like um, you've been living inside my head and it's reminding me. So after Lucas died, I would walk the streets in my neighborhood, just like bawling my eyes out. I I think my neighbors actually still think that I have lost my mind. I have not disabused them of that notion. (laughs) I was just walking the streets, weeping and thinking to myself, like, is there anybody where I could bring this sorrow and it wouldn't be seen as a failure? Because death is a failure in our society, not triumphing over the odds is a failure. Lucas died earlier than many Lee syndrome children do, which is like a burden that we carry all the time. Not having arrived at a cure feels like a failure. What am I supposed to do with this? And this college friend of mine came to mind. So she lives in Hawaii and her son died when he was one years old from cancer. And she went on to work in hospice. She was a hospital chaplain for a major pediatric hospital. And so I called her just weeping. And um, she said to me, hey, first of all, I'm here. I'm here to sit with you in the sorrow. I'm not going to try to fix it. I think that sitting in your sorrow is where you're going to find beauty. And second of all, I have a book for you, and it's called The Healing Power of the Dark Emotions. (laughs) So I read this book, and the reason I'm telling you all this story is because in this process of being in community with these other bereaved, rare parents, this mom included, and in sort of welcoming in these really like dark feelings of failure, of anger, of grief, of not having a story that is, you know, palatable to society. I think I found a greater depth of appreciation and understanding for how incredible Lucas's story really was. Because Lucas, my Lucas, and I bet your Lucas too, showed up every day of his life 
with a smile. He showed up with presence and he showed up to play. Like play is just as important as the feeding tube or whatever other supplies. Like, can he have a big truck? Can he pet a dog? Can he see his friend? And I don't know, in, in welcoming my grief and pain and failure, then it was, it was in that that I could also see that I had done the most important thing, which was staying present, being joyful with him when my own heart was shattering and not trying to achieve something that wasn't achievable or fix something that wasn't fixable. Like I just stayed present and that was enough. And so I don't know, I want every rare parent to feel that, you know, no matter how many therapies you do, no matter how hard you work towards a cure and all of those things are good and worthy. If you can just stay present with your kid for five minutes, it doesn't even have to be five minutes for one minute. Like that's your, that's your work. You are enough. That is the work. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And I will say that the stay present, we often think, I think our kids are demanding of us and they are medically demanding caregiver needs sort of demanding, but it sounds like your Lucas and definitely my Lucas was demanding of you to connect and stay present. Like you just said, and that is a, a real shift, you know, our, our, typical default lifestyle is go, go, go. And, and here's someone saying, I'm going to be slow. I'm going to be less in motion and you're going to have to meet me where I am. And I want you there with me, not going anywhere, not doing other things. And if you, you can't always accommodate that, but to the extent that we did, he was really grounding us. And I, I sometimes describe it as being given permission but it's permission, the people with no kids or healthy kids, they don't need that permission. I didn't need that permission. And yet it it's what it took for me to get there. Absolutely. I love this conversation so much. And it reminds me of just a hundred moments that flash in front of my eyes of my own story of that. And it reminds me, Daniel and I talk a lot about different kinds of advocacy, right? And that there is no hierarchy and that it's all of it is so important and all of it is weaved together and that there isn't that default advocacy type that you just kind of sort of mentioned and that this is such a huge one. It's such a big one and it's such a family system one, right? Especially when you know what's looming in your future, like how best can you protect and nurture this family system that is all going to be impacted by this and maybe being present is the most powerful thing you can do and such an example to set for so many other people. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of things that sort of help you to be more present, I'm curious, Kim, that the timing your son was born in the time of COVID and I lost my son in the time of COVID and it, you know, it meant we were all home. We're all, our schedules had changed. We're all home with him. And in a way he, he loved that. And if you were we didn't know we were going to lose him. But if you were told you have so many days left with someone, what would you do? You would you would take some time off and spend more time with that person. So we, in a sense, if you want to think of it as a gift, we got that gift. And I wonder if, if that had, if that played into the time you were able to spend with your Lucas. Absolutely. The pandemic was so complex in its impacts on families and it had a very strange impact on my family because it kept us all at home together, which was in retrospect, an incredible gift. And it also made us very, very careful about infection before we knew that Lucas was immunocompromised. So many children with Lee syndrome, with a particular variant of Lee syndrome that Lucas had, they die as a result of uh, just a typical viral infection that a child would catch in a normal course of you know daycare or any kind of care or just being a kid honestly and we were hyper protective of lucas you know from the moment he was born which ended up really being protective of his life ultimately um, lucas never had a fever for his entire life and i think part of that was because he was born in the pandemic. And then once we understood his diagnosis, we kept up all of those same protocols. And, you know, I think the pandemic created this pathway for families and friends to continue the habits that they had begun out of love and protection for Lucas. We all understood how to do that in a different way. 
if that makes sense. And you wrote a beautiful piece, Daniel, recently about, I think you called it chronic compassion. And I was thinking about how we had a lot of rituals of compassion, which you talk a little bit about in your writing. I'll let you explain it more because I'm probably butchering it. But we had these um, rituals in our family that I found to be very compassionate. And one of those was the way that we all came around Lucas with masks and hand washing and testing just to make sure that he wouldn't get sick so he could spend as much time with us as possible. Wow. Yeah. The Thank you for mentioning that piece. Um, it's an idea I've been calling ritual. We need to ritualize chronic compassion because we know the illness and the needs are chronic. And we've all probably had the experience of some of your friends step up, but unfortunately, some of your friends step away. And and they do better on discrete occasions, usually that have rituals, like you're in the hospital, so I know what to do for you because I can go see you in the hospital or, or do something for you. Or it's, it's a death, so there's a funeral ritual and I know what to do. Or even if it's the diagnosis, people tend to be pretty good about the, the acute need around diagnosis day. But almost anything in between is a little too vague sometimes. And so I was wondering, could we create more rituals? And it sounds like you created some. You know, I think we need to let people know where they can step in. And it, it's tough. It, I get into it in the piece in the blog a little bit because a lot of people do try and they don't know quite what to do. And then they say, how can I help? And we don't want to hear that because now we have to figure that out for them when we're already overburdened. But if there were more occasions, and I think somewhat we do that with our awareness days or for those of us that might host a fundraiser or something, we can we can make that an obvious occasion where there's an ask and you can help, but we need more of them. And I don't know exactly what they are. You know, it's almost like if there's not a Hallmark card for that, <laughs> we as a society don't know we're supposed to be doing something. Right. Yes, I completely um, understand and absolutely had the experience. And I'm sure Effie and many others have too of, you know, the friends who just fade away. Um, and then the friends that you never expected to step up and they do. But I loved your piece on chronic compassion and ritual because ritual, rituals that we made up were actually incredibly powerful for our family during Lucas's lifetime, and they continue to be powerful in his death. So I'll just share two brief stories, and brevity is not my strong point, so hopefully they'll be brief. But um, the first one is that we were hospitalized when Lucas was about a year old, and that's when he got... Um, his MRI, and we first had the indications that he likely had Lee syndrome. And like you said, people came around us during that hospitalization. And then we got home and everybody just seemed to move on. And I was super angry. And once I understood that I, what I was angry about and how much help we actually were going to need, my husband and I decided to make this ask of his family. Um, because, of course, all of his family had said, is there anything we can do? And they're really compassionate and lovely people. And we said, can you come to our house every single week, every single Friday? We may go out for an hour, the two of us as parents, to like talk about medical decision making or maybe have a beer or whatever. We may stay because maybe Lucas won't be stable. But can you show up every Friday? And they did. And something happened as a result of that ritual, which I think is like one of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced, which is that Lucas and his grandpa developed the most beautiful friendship. So his grandpa was the kind of person who would just stay still with Lucas. I have so many pictures of them sitting on the couch together and Lucas is just beaming because finally somebody is going at his pace. And it taught me to go at his pace. Like, I don't know if I would have seen how to be present without this ritual of respite that brought grandpa. And grandpa is like one of the busiest people I know. He still works. He travels all over. But somehow he and Lucas communicated in this way that I cannot explain in words. And it was the most beautiful part of our life. I mean, we all looked forward to Fridays. They gave us all respite. That is so beautiful. Wow. I love that story so much. Oh, my gosh. My father-in-law is... Um, an amazing human. And if you had told me when I first married into this family that he would teach me how to stay present and pay attention, I would have laughed at you. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and then the second ritual is, you know, Lucas died very suddenly and we were all just so shattered by it that I basically, 
I crawled under my covers and except for caring for my five-year-old, I did not talk to anybody. And, and I did my, you know, neighborhood walks where I'd like cry and my neighbors thought I was crazy. And some cousins of ours who, who loved Lucas very much and their kid and Lucas were close. They said, Hey, we know that you actually like can't cook for yourself right now and that you really miss family. And so you need to come over to our house every Tuesday and you don't have to talk to us. You can just sit on our couch and eat and go home. We don't care, but you have to come over every Tuesday and we're going to have dinner. And we're still doing that nine months later. And it's this place that I know I can go and say, hey, I'm really sad, or I can tell a joke. It's like the rare disease community, but it's our family. And there's something about the consistency of those Fridays and now these Tuesdays that offers a bridge across a divide of experience that can never be shared. Like these cousins or Lucas's grandpa, they will never know what it's like to have their child die. They will never know what it's like to be a rare disease parent. They know what it's like to love Lucas as a cousin or, you know, friend or grandchild, but they'll never know what my experience is like. And I wouldn't wish that awfulness on them, but they can still show up. And when they show up in these rituals, I think it makes us easy. It makes it easier for us both to be present. Um, I know it would look different for every family, but I, I think that your idea about ritual is incredibly powerful just from my own experiences. I'm so glad you had your two rituals. They sound like such great comfort. Mm -hmm. Yes, I love those. Although I think I invented the neighborhood crying walk. So, I mean, <laughs> you might have heard that on the podcast or seen me, but... <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yeah. I actually talk a lot about how it was like probably the thing that kept me and not cured me, but it was the most healing aspect that I gave myself throughout this time was just that space with myself walking and just, you know, being being in my body. But anyways, thank you so much for sharing those rituals with me. I love the respite ritual one. Daniel, I need a ritual chronic compassion slash ritualized respite story from you. Oh, man. I don't know if I don't have a ritual quite like that. I wish I did. I'm I'm looking at, you know, the idea, and I mentioned it in the blog too, you see those bumper stickers or whatever that say, practice random acts of kindness. And I always see that and I think, yeah, I want to do that. Maybe I should schedule that. And no, well, that's not random. <laughs> so, but I, I think I, and probably a lot of people do need the schedule. So I'm for myself going to try to schedule like the first of the month, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's when I can be more available to people or do some good in the world and and maybe maybe it will you know grow from there and it won't just be one day a month but at least let me start i now and it's not just it is somewhat because i'm on the other side of it right i didn't have the bandwidth when i was in your position effie you're struggling to keep your head above water and um i have a little more ability to to take things on now. And so maybe it's my turn to be there for some people instead of, you know, take the lessons that I wish were kind of working in my favor a few years ago and try to be the person on the other side of it now. I think that also speaks to just having the wisdom of knowing what happens to you when you help other people. Yeah. And I'm not sure many people really genuinely go there, at least more than like, a couple special times because of a reason, but to make it a practice in your humanity is different. It, it's a very awkward feeling, I think, for most people. You know, I feel it like, oh, maybe this is too much or maybe this isn't the right time. And whenever I have that sort of doubt feeling, if I push through it and I do the thing, and it could just be making a phone call or sending a text message or whatever, but it almost always feels like it was just what the other person needed or it meant a lot to them or it was, you know, it really lands in a bigger way than you think it will. One of the podcasts, it's more like an economics podcast I was listening to said, you know, when you give somebody a $2 brownie, if it's a random act of kindness kind of thing, right? You're thinking, I spent $2, I got a brownie, I handed it to somebody. That's no big deal. But their perception is very different. Their perception is, wow, a random stranger did this wonderful, kind thing for me. They have no valuation on that brownie of what it cost or, you know, that's not their experience of it. It's just that a good thing happened for no good reason or, you know, because people are good people sometimes or whatever. It's, it's a bigger experience in the receiving by far than it is in the giving. Yes, I love that. 
FEU are great to create a one-page handout that people can have when you say, how can I help? Well, here's a list. Here's a possible list of things you can do to help. And I think if if we could, you know, maybe we're overwhelmed, we don't have time, but it would serve us in the long run if we create lists like that so that when somebody asks, can you hand it to them on a piece of paper or can you point them to it on your blog or something, then it's not as awkward as saying, oh, thanks, Susan, I need you to clean my house today. You have a big long list of 30 things and maybe one of them is more suited to Susan than cleaning the house. And then it doesn't feel like as much of an awkward imposition, I think. And it's also the kind of work where if you do it once, you don't have to do it every time. You have that list ready. I was just thinking about that, Daniel. And Effie, I, I, you can maybe link to that amazing list you made in the show notes because I found it really helpful in Lucas's lifetime. I think there is something here, particularly when you're in the midst of caring for a child that's medically complex, about how do you lift the burden, which you know a lot of people talk about as mental load, of figuring out what's needed and how to make it happen? And you know, there's all these lovely people on the outside of your experience who don't understand what you're going through but would like to be helpful. And then there's you trying to figure it out. And I just want to acknowledge something here that may be very unique to me. It may not be shared, but in case it is, I did find that I felt like I should be able to do this by myself. Like, it's my child. I should be able to take care of him. I should be able to take care of my daughter too. I should be able to show up at my job. Like, I shouldn't be falling apart. I had a hard time at first realizing that I am worthy of care and compassion. And I'm not just worthy of it when I have a breakdown or when my kid is in the hospital. I'm worthy of it on a regular basis because I'm a human and my son has a diagnosis that is awful and we don't have that much time. And so it really, for me, the change was to say like, yes, I'm worthy of this and I can receive it. And then I'll be able to structure it to keep going so that it's not just a one-off thing. And so I wonder if for other folks, they feel like, you know, I don't want to bother somebody or I shouldn't need all this help. But if they could get past that feeling of, I don't want to bother to, I deserve this. I don't want to need it to, I actually do need it. Whether that would help us when we're in sort of the thick of it to invite more consistent support. And I know there's probably people listening who are like, I don't have a grandpa that can show up. Um, and that's true. You know, we, we had in a place of immense privilege with our family. But I, I believe that there are people who can show up for all of us. 100%. And thank you for that hot tip reminder and recognition. And you do have people that can show up for you. And it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be old gramps because I think most of us can really look around our circle and our digital circle and realize that it's almost all people you didn't expect. Yeah. And just disclaimer, not everyone is naturally equipped to sit with us in our grief. Okay. And that's okay. Maybe you should go look at the list and maybe you're great at mowing lawns. Okay. Like that is important. And that matters so much. And it's okay. You don't have to sit with us because there are just some people that we don't want to sit with either because maybe they talk too much. <laughs> don't feel bad about that either. For real. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. You too. If there's something important that you wish people knew about grieving parents and the emotions that you navigate, what would it be? And perhaps how can we collectively create an understanding of this, of ritualizing this chronic compassion? And I will link that so we can all get more ideas from Daniel's blog, of course. Um, but if there's something that you'd like to leave for grieving parents, what would it be? I think, you know, because Kim and I both lost our children, this conversation has a lot been on the grief of death, physical loss. But that grief starts for all of us in rare disease. It starts on diagnosis day. It's, there's different kinds of grief, but it doesn't start at the death. And that's, that's one of the reasons for talking about what are the rituals that come in between what comes in between diagnosis day. And, and maybe for some people with rare disease, you know, death is way out in the horizon. Like it's supposed to be like we all expect it to be, but either way, I, I hope people listening to this 
can map the conversation of grieving to their own experience because it is all those emotions even when mortality and death isn't on the immediate horizon that that horrible mix of all those feelings you know you could talk about the five stages but they i don't like the word stages because they don't you don't check them off and move on they come back around and back around and back around and sometimes i just recently discovered this one after all these years that the way they can compound you know you can be told in my case oh lucas isn't going to talk all right then a year later, he's he's not going to be able to use the eye gaze decision-making thing. He's not going to be able to use the PECS communication. So he can't talk was a thing to grieve in and of itself. But then it was layers of that that led to how little can he communicate. And each one of those was a new sort of shock event that we needed to grieve. Thank you for sharing that, Daniel. It feels, although our timelines were so different, it feels... So resonant. And I think that what I would want others to know, whether they're a bereaved parent or whether, like you said, they are caring for a living child and all the complexity that comes with that, I think that I would want them to know that the sadness isn't scary, that when you stay present with the grief, and I was so scared of my grief, honestly, I didn't want to make time for it. But when you make time for it, right there, right alongside of the sadness, is love. I wrote a blog for CPN about this moment that I experienced with my Lucas, and it was actually shortly before his death, though I didn't know it at the time. And he had just been feeling really uncomfortable and unhappy. And I mean, that's a characteristic of the disease. It does not make you feel good. And I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. Like with his doctors, there was no medication shift that was solving the problem. And so I told my husband like, Hey, you know what? Why don't I do bedtime tonight and just spend some time with Lucas because often we'd trade off and I do his sister's bedtime. And when I did his bedtime that night, I just, I don't know what came over me, but I made space for my sadness and I just wept my way through all of the books that we read and, you know, let my tears run into his hair and all over his cheeks. And I cannot ever explain to you why he calmed down and was present with me in that bedtime. He wasn't fussing anymore. He just was gazing at me. And I don't know whether he was gazing at me and thinking, yeah, mom, you get it, you're here with me. Or whether simply he was just happy to sit on my lap and have me slow down, I have no idea. And I'll never know because he couldn't talk to tell me. But that moment of slowing down and letting myself be sad was also a moment of immense connection and love. And I would, if I could go back to one moment in Lucas's life, like that would be one of the ones I would choose. We were so present together. So yeah, the sadness isn't scary. It's where the love is. Yeah. Oh, thank you both. I am so grateful for you and I love you so much. And I know people are really gonna resonate with this conversation. So thank you for offering it. I can only imagine the prep in your brain that it takes to to show up here and, and do this with me. So thanks. Tell everyone you, where they can find you. Also, shout out to Sophia Zilber, one of the co-founders of Cure Mido, who also had a daughter, Miriam, with Lee syndrome. I forgot to mention her in the beginning. I'm so glad you have a valiant leader, Kim. Me too. Sophie is amazing. <laughs> okay. So tell everyone where they can find you. I will link the CPN blog, the Daniels blog, and the how you can help form in the show notes along with what you leave. Thanks, Effie. Well, I am just, I'm blogging at CPN and then I'm just on Instagram. And you could dig through the CPN blogger archives and find me there from a few years ago. On Instagram, I'm Disorder Rare Disease Films. You can also go to thedisorderchannel.com. All right, cool. Thanks, guys. I'll see you soon. Yeah, can't wait. Thanks for making space for this conversation, Effie. I, I just, I want to say how remarkable it is because I think that sometimes it can be really scary to look down the path and look at death and it can be especially scary to do that when you're not there yet and you hope to never get there and it takes a person who has um, a remarkable amount of presence and the ability to hold multiple truths at the same time and all of those stories together 
And I think that's why your podcast is a place that so many of us find comfort and joy and laughter in. Like you create that space and it's it's a gift. Thank you. Thanks, guys. A special thank you to Dante Labs for sponsoring this episode of Once Upon a Gene. To learn more about Dante Labs and how they're revolutionizing healthcare, please visit us.dantelabs.com. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.